The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. Welcome, everybody. So we're continuing a discussion we started. I started at the beginning of September. We're just reflecting on this path of practice we call this path of awakening and trying to understand it from a really pragmatic point of view. All the different elements, sort of a way that makes sense. And I think that's one of the great skills of the Buddha as a teacher. He was very pragmatic. And, uh, you know, there are different things that draw us to the practice. But one of the things that tends to draw people to this way of practicing or working with their life is that it's, it just makes a lot of sense. So I mentioned, and I'll just walk through it quickly, you know, one of the first insights is we realize that how our heart or mind is relating to the moment, it really matters. That, you know, out there, you know, in our life experience, sometimes good things happen, sometimes bad things happen. And it's not that those things aren't important, but as we're living, we, if we're fortunate, we discover that how I'm relating to what's happening actually turns out to be more important than what's happening. And this is a real discovery because it, it tells us you know, we don't have to be helpless because if bad things happen to us, well, then we're helplessly have to deal with those bad things. But if how we relate to experience actually tends, turns out to be more important, then there's always something we can do. We can always look at how we're relating and cultivate more and more skillful ways of relating to our experience. So once we have that sort of intuitive seeing that it actually matters how I'm relating, that this is relevant, how am I relating to the experience of my body right now? How am I relating to the mood or to the mental content? Then we start to pay more close attention to not just what's happening, but how the mind's relating. It's like a whole other world. How is the mind relating? Is the mind resisting or is it accepting? Is it clear or is it confused? And then we begin to see that, uh, well, sometimes my mind is resisting, or you know, the word we often use in Buddhism is clinging or grasping. It's fighting or struggling with the present moment, with some condition or some aspect of the present moment. It's like struggling by being in denial of it, like I don't want to know, I don't want to think about that, I don't want to feel this pain in my knee or it picks it up and it sort of blames somebody, concocts a story. So that activity, that, that struggling, it really arises out of a, a sense that this is personal. This is happening to me. I've got to do something about it. I have to resist it. I have to struggle with it. I have to fix it. I have to control it. All this just flows naturally from an inquiry, like, 
life isn't perfect. So we look around. Why isn't it perfect? And we see, oh, I'm relating matters. And we look more closely and we get to know how we're relating and especially how at times we're relating in ways that directly create suffering or stress or contraction. And we look at it more and more closely because we're interested. Well, how does that happen? Why is the mind relating in ways that create tension, create stress and suffering? Oh, I'm taking it personally. And because I take this moment, this experience personally, it makes sense to resist. It makes sense to struggle. It makes sense to deny. It makes sense to want revenge. All of those negative, what we would call negative mind states or negative emotions arise. It's not like somebody's, in a sense, being stupid. Those emotions make sense from a particular point of view. The question is, what is that point of view and how does it arise? Because in hindsight, we see it didn't make sense. But in the moment, it made sense. So we're misperceiving. This is what we talked about the last couple of weeks. Because the mind is distracted, it doesn't realize it's distracted. Because the mind is misperceiving how it is, it doesn't realize it's misperceiving. The distractions, the misperceptions keep the mind blinded. So distracted by distractions, we don't realize we're distracted. So we have to change that, but you can't do that directly. Oh, okay, I'm going to pay attention. I'm going to see clearly. That, that attitude itself is probably arising out of fear or probably arising out of greed. I want to be the one person in the room that sees clearly. And then I'm going to market it <laughs> and sell it. So we have, you know, all this sort of distortions. So the practice, like, to get out of this cyclical pattern of misperceiving, acting based on the misperception, setting in motion more stress, more distortion, and on and on like that, the only way out of it is, in a sense, to take a few steps back and to understand, well, misperception, Taking things personally depends on not seeing clearly. So I'm going to I'm going to reflect. Well, what would help the mind see things as they are? If I take things personally, it's because I'm not seeing clearly. So is there a way, is there something to do so that I'll start seeing things clearly and things won't feel so personal? One thing we realize when we, you know, just start paying attention in our life, we notice that when things are really upsetting, really difficult, stressful for us, we start to take things more and more personally. You notice that? It's like one bad, things ha bad thing happens, and we have a little bit of res uh, resilience, like we can handle it. Okay, it's just difficult. But a couple more bad things happen to us, and all of a sudden it seems like somebody's out to get me. You know, and we start justifying all kinds of not so wholesome behaviors, whether it's getting drunk or seeking revenge or blaming or, you know, all kinds of things that in hindsight we'll see, well, that didn't make sense. Of course, that wasn't going to work. But in the moment, it seemed to make a lot of sense. So 
This teaches us something really important. When we're overwhelmed, we tend to use really primitive ways of relating, basically ways of relating that don't work, that lead to suffering. So the opposite would be not being overwhelmed. So much of the formal mental training we do that we often call samadhi, this practice of unifying the mind, collecting the energy of the mind in the present moment, generating states of happiness, this sort of inner happiness, not happy because of anything, like I'm happy because I'm here at Common Ground, or I'm happy that you guys like me, or I'm happy that I have money in the bank, or I'm happy that I'm healthy. But this is a happiness that doesn't depend on particular conditions. Just it's the happiness, like of the mind, uh, of the mind itself. It's interesting. We have to actually go out and disturb the mind, in a sense. When the mind isn't being provoked, like I think about, oh my God, I'm getting older, or I think about whatever amount of money I have in the bank, it's probably not enough. This is how we go out and disturb the mind. We actually have to go and disturb the mind. But if we stop doing that for a while, the natural happiness, the natural radiance, the natural ease of the mind begins to leak through all of our negative mental habit energies. So the, the formal meditation practice is basically collecting the energy of the mind in a way that uh, suppresses our tendency to agitate it by worrying about the past or the future, by falling into our habit of being critical of ourselves or others, comparing ourselves to others, analyzing things that don't need to be analyzed, even wondering, even fantasizing is disturbing for the mind. No, I'm not saying we're going to all of a sudden stop and never do any of that stuff again. But we can, for periods of time, simplify the mind, basically tease out those tendencies to do things that are agitating for the mind. And the mind just starts to get happy, not because what's happening, but because of what's not happening, because we're not tormenting it through these activities that we normally just sort of fall into out of habit. So we're not tormenting the mind, not agitating the mind. The mind gets really happy. It becomes content. It becomes peaceful. If we develop enough, it becomes really still and quiet, blissful, silent. Now this mind, this kind of mind, a mind that's been refreshed, that's quiet, that's still, this mind isn't going to easily fall into self-centered habits when it's relating to the experience of the body, when it's relating to the content in the mind, when it's relating to you know, experiences out in the world. It's going to have a capacity that we normally don't have to see what we say, to see things as they are. Normally, we're not seeing things as they are. When I have an experience of sensation, when I have an experience of seeing mental content, you know, my thoughts, emotions, or seeing things, hearing things, I immediately experience that from the perspective of my mental overlay, my conceptual sort of universe. I kind of, I was going to say projective, but actually it's more like a vomit. We vomit out our sort of ideas about things over and over again. It's just like it's a spewing. We sort of throw it out there. 
It's not like uh, an intelligent projection. It's just like we can't help it. You know, we see somebody we know, we can't help but just sort of spewing all of our ideas about that person and then living out of that. You, we all have ideas about common ground. We have ideas about Mark. We have ideas about our body, our age, our success in life. We have ideas about everything. And they're just sort of spewing out there and then confusing the mind. The mind gets reactive. But when we cultivate this unification, the samadhi, the quietness, the stillness, the peacefulness of the mind, that habit of sort of spewing out our ideas about things, vomiting out our ideas about things, that habit gets suppressed. It, it tends to quiet down. And we have more moments where we're in the world, either in our meditation or out in our world. But there's not as much of this sort of active projection. Because that putting out, it really happens because we're agitated, we're fearful, we're anxious, we're needy, we're wanting. And so we sort of keep throwing out our ideas onto the world, onto our experience, as if they're going to lead to more safety or more happiness or getting what we want. But when we're already feeling happy, we don't do that so much. And we know that. Like, I mean, I, this, this is something actually we experience all the time. You have a nice interaction with somebody. They say nice things about you. You really hear it. You feel that, like they're being sincere. It really goes deep. And you start feeling good about life and about yourself. <clears throat> and then <clears throat> it changes how we see the next moment. Or somebody says something to us that pushes a deep button of fear, like of some shame or I'm not good enough. And then, now that's over, now we're into the next moment doing the next thing. And it really affects. It colors how we see the world. But it isn't so much what that person said, the nice words or the not-so-nice words. It's how we... Related, We took it personally, you know. Now, on the one hand, we take it personally, it feels good. And feeling good, we're, we have temporary immunity from our neurotic stuff because we feel good. But it won't be long before it dissipates and then we get neurotic trying to get it back. We'll try to remember, oh, what did that person say to me? You know, oh, yeah. <laughs> but all of a sudden, the work it takes to remember is more neurotic than the pleasantness of remembering what they said to us. So it ends up being counterproductive. You know, it's almost like we're sliding down the well of not feeling good about ourselves, but we're desperately sort of scratching into the side, trying to remember something good, you know, to make ourselves feel good. So this other way of finding contentment or happiness, it isn't dependent on what people say or don't say. The happiness of samadhi is the happiness the Buddha said you don't have to worry about. You know, a lot of sense experiences, the Buddha would say, be careful because they're not permanent. They come and go. But the happiness of a calm, tranquil, unified mind, that happiness which can be just sort of an ordinary experience of tranquility to very profound, transforming states of calm, and bliss. 
So from just an ordinary experience of tranquility to deeper and deeper states, those states tend to tease out all of our neurotic stuff. Because when we're feeling tranquil, you know, like we got on vacation, and now for a few days we don't have anything to do, as soon as we start to take something personally, like, yeah, but it's only three days, and then i got to go back to work, we start to ruin it. So the thing about this inner tranquility or peacefulness is it tends to weed out self-centered activity. The more we let go of thinking about ourselves as a meditator, trying to be a good meditator, worried about not being a good meditator, the more we let go of that stuff, the deeper the state of concentration is. The more we try to do it right, the more we think it doesn't matter whether we do it right, all of those attitudes, all those thoughts, get in the way. This practice really depends on a balance, you know, a balance of energy and release. And this balance happens best when we get out of the way, when the self gets out of the way. So here's the thing about samadhi. Samadhi, by definition, you know, what we call samadhi, which is often translated as concentration, but concentration is not a great translation for this because I can be concentrated trying to do evil things in the world, right? So obviously concentration is too general a term. So samadhi really means this natural unification of the mind, this unification of the mind that happens when the habits of distortion and distraction are let go of. So the concentration arises not because I'm doing something, but rather the self has abandoned distorting, disturbing, agitating activities. It's a quieting down. It's a letting go. And what remains is this beautiful balance of mind. And when the self enters in and starts taking the balance, the bliss personally, we lose it. I mean, there are many people in this room who've been practicing for a long time who can tell you many stories of, you know, being really in that calm, peaceful place and then thinking, oh, I'm in that calm, peaceful place. <laughs> and immediately begins to fall apart. Because the means to getting to the calm, peaceful place wasn't trying to get to the calm, peaceful place. It was seeing the tendency to take something personally and letting it go. Seeing the tendency to judge things and letting it go. Letting it go because the mind sees with mindfulness, oh, that's just judgment. When we see that these self-centered habits, these what we call the hindrances, what hinders concentration, what hinders samadhi, when we see that these hindrances are just hindrances, just impersonal habits of mind, it's actually relatively easy to abandon them. The key to abandoning the hindrances is to see that they're hindrances. When a provocative thought arises in my mind, and I don't see it's a hindrance, but I think it's me talking to me, I'm not going to abandon it. I'm going to go with it. You know, I'm going to think about it and then think about what I thought about it and then on and on like that. But when I see that that judging thought or that critical thought or that wanting thought is just a thought, it's just an impersonal hindrance, a disturbing hindrance in the mind, 
it's actually very easy to let it go. And it's interesting. The way we let it go isn't like shaking it off, like, oh, yuck. The way we let it go is we see it's an impersonal thought that will go on its own. So the letting go is actually letting the thought arise and cease. There's nobody that actually has to let it go. We just don't continue with it. That's the cessation. That's the letting go. It's the not taking it personally is all we have to do. There's no more we have to do with these negative tendencies in our mind. We have to see them clearly. When we see them clearly, we don't take them personally. And we don't perpetuate the cycle. If a thought, a disturbing thought, keeps returning, it simply means we're not seeing it clearly enough yet. And we should be forgiving, you know. And then in the next moment, with the next arising, we should try to see. Well, it's just a thought. It's just an emotion. It's just this feeling, this right here. It's just this phenomenon. Nothing more, nothing less. This phenomena is arising due to causes and conditions. One of them is attachment or identification. When there's identification, that clinging is the fuel for its continued arising. When the mind sees it in a neutral way, it's still unpleasant, but it's not resisting the unpleasantness of it. Or it's pleasant, and it's not grabbing a hold of the pleasantness of it. It's seeing it in an impersonal way, just as a mental event. Then it comes and it goes, and it maintains the unification of mind. The mind doesn't lose its calm, doesn't lose its stability, doesn't lose that inner happiness. So samadhi really depends on this. You know, when we first hear about meditation practice, we just think it's about some kind of willful effort. Okay, I'm going to take my attention. I'm going to put it on my nostrils, and I'm going to feel the breath going in. I'm going to feel the breath going out, and I'll get there. I'll get that deep, beautiful state. Some people, a very small minority, have that kind of willfulness to do that. But they've got other problems, which maybe I'll talk about. <laughs> because, you know, normally that sort of capacity to sort of willfully control the mind uh, is, is all kind of ego-based. And so they may be able to sort of have that sort of ego-based samadhi, but even though they're not aware of it, there's a lot of tension in the mind and body that goes with it that needs to be teased out of the system. But for most of us, you know, we have, you know, we get our samadhi instructions, whether it's mindfulness of breathing or using a mantra or whatever you work with. But here at the center, we mostly teach mindfulness of breathing, mindfulness of physical sensations, or mindfulness of hearing as our primary anchors for developing samadhi, de developing concentration. So normally, you know, we get the instructions and we sit down and we bring the attention to the anchor or the chosen meditation object. For example, feeling the breath going in, feeling the breath going out. And before long, we're distracted. And then we can get disappointed. Well, what do you mean? I put my attention here. Why did it go away? And we think something's broken. You know, well, I, clearly the person didn't give me the right instructions. Or we think we're broken. Clearly, I'm not listening to the instructions. You know, we want to blame somebody. 
But actually, it's natural for the mind to wander. It's not, right now, it's not natural for the mind to know the breath and to sustain that attention with the breath. It's just not natural. It's not the habit. So the mind's going to wander. Much of our practice is seeing that the mind has wandered and returning back to the anchor and seeing that it's wandered and returning and seeing that it's wandered and returning. And this process itself gets purified. So at first we do it grudgingly, we're bored, we hate doing it. But eventually we realize, well, why don't we make this a beautiful art of living? You know, coming back to the task at at hand, why can't that be done in a really graceful, beautiful way? Why can't that be enough? I mean, we don't need to sort of paint the most beautiful painting in the world. Maybe instead we can just return to the present moment in a really beautiful way, in a way that has like no reverberations, meaning we're not relying on hatred to return to the present moment, greed to return to the present moment. We're using love. You're using only wholesome qualities to return to the present moment. You know, and we do that once, and then we can do it again. You know, why not? Because once it's a beautiful activity, we don't mind doing it. It's only when we have this idea it's like a huge chore to come back to the breath or to come back to feeling the body sitting or come back to hearing. It's only when we think it's a big chore that it becomes a big chore. You know, think about what people do. People put 40-pound packs on their back and climb 3,000 feet in one day. And they call it a vacation, you know? <laughs> or, you know, just all the different things that people do. You know, they buy models and they put the models together. or They knit sweaters. So our mind, our bodies, they don't mind work. What makes life so uh, overwhelming and, and unpleasant is our attitude. It isn't the task at hand. So we take the task of returning and this is important. So when you're, if, if you really want to cultivate a daily sitting practice and then start doing retreat practice, you've got to learn to love it. We do things we love and we don't do things we don't love. And basically, there's no way around that. <laughs> or if you force yourself to do things you don't love, you know, you have a miserable life. <laughs> so you've got to make this something you love to do. And actually... Coming into the present moment is a beautiful experience. It's actually, I'm not kidding, it's, it's truly one of the easiest things to love to do. But there's a threshold that's not necessarily pleasant. Because it's unfamiliar, there's going to be some resistance training the mind to come into the present moment. And not only that, there's another thing that makes it difficult to get some momentum in the practice. Because we've been running so long from the present moment, there's a residual, there's kind of a reverberation from being distracted. And in, when we come into the present moment, like it or not, there's no way of avoiding the unpleasant feeling, the unpleasant reverberation from having been avoiding being present. Because it takes tension, it takes stress to keep the mind distracted. So as we learn to come into the present moment, we have to feel the reverberation of all that stress we've been using to stay distracted. 
So, you know, when you sit down, you feel a lot of tension sometimes. And it's not necessarily going to disappear quickly. Just the residual tension of having been distracted for so many years. But that's okay. We're, that means we're moving in the right direction. Or you start coming into the present moment and you notice how crazy your mind is. Just like a waterfall of thinking. Or you can use a more gross image if you want. You know, It's not, not usually as pretty as a waterfall. You know, Just the sort of ongoingness of our internal commentary, dialogues. And it can feel like this cannot be the way, but actually it is the way. The way toward calm, toward peace, toward stillness, and then the deeper insights, it is the, in, in the direction of feeling how it actually is. So if our mind is this sort of explosion of activity, or if our mind is like this dense swamp of heaviness, well, that's how it is. And the unification has to include the way it is. There's no way to go to the bliss without feeling, without collecting the energy of the mind in the present moment. That's actually the path. A lot of other meditations really involve uh, kind of a wholesome, I mean, the, the, the wholesome meditations that aren't this style, they do involve kind of a wholesome escape. You know, we take something, we construct something beautiful, like even meditations on God or meditation on goodness. You know, we construct an idea of something beautiful or holy or sacred. And we focus the attention on that and we train the mind to be so focused on that that we get a very deep vacation from life. But it's just a vacation and we got to return. So those kinds of meditations, although can be healing and really uh, powerful, they don't involve a transformation of the mind. So this strategy is we, instead of constructing something to get concentrated on, we use our lived experience. So the concentration in this style of practice comes more slowly than if you concoct something positive and then focus on it or you turn your attention to something positive and focus on it. Because we're using things as they actually are. And we like the breathing process, or hearing, or sensation. But what develops more quickly is wisdom. So this particular approach is more balanced between concentration and the development of wisdom. Some practices emphasize developing a lot of concentration. But eventually, you still got to do the wisdom practice. And there are advantages that one of the disadvantages of developing more concentration quickly is that you can get addicted or um, somehow feel like this is the way. And then you can start getting really uh, irritated by anything in the way of your concentration. Somebody moves and a really strong <laughs> anger can arise. You know? Or all of a sudden you've got, you hurt your knee and you can't sit in the way you're used to sitting. And you can get so kind of freaked out that somebody's taken your sort of soft spot away, your kind of soft, fuzzy, warm, beautiful spot away. So, or, you know, like even religious traditions, you know, we've got this beautiful temple where I have these sort of deep, meaningful experiences about my God. But then somebody builds another temple to their 
you know, whatever. And then it starts to create doubt in my mind. Maybe I'm concentrating on the wrong beautiful thing. You know, maybe, and that can cause all kinds of problems too. So this is a, this is a very, the, the path the Buddha laid out is a very safe path. We use ordinary experience to collect the mind. We develop these powerful states of happiness, calm, because we're not agitating ourselves. And then with that calm, with that peacefulness, we begin to, you know, we just move back into life and we start experiencing life not from a self-centered point of view, but from a more neutral, clear point of view. We see things as they are. And we just stop. Basically, we're undermining the tendency to take things personally. We're realizing, though, although it's a deep habit to take everything personally, it's just a habit. And actually, the mind can be reconditioned not to take things personally. This is what the Buddha means by the path of awakening. We're awakening to a way of being where we're not taking things personally. We're there. We can still be a mother or a father or a lover or a friend. We can still do good things in the world. But we're not taking it personally. So it's not the activity of our life isn't coming out of greed and aversion, self-centered stuff. It's coming out of love and generosity. So maybe I'll leave it here. I know we've been a little rushed uh, with people sharings in the past. And we'll probably spend another two more weeks looking at samadhi and specifically uh, in the weeks ahead, looking at some of the meditation techniques, how to work, how to generate deeper states of samadhi. But maybe we'll take the next 20 minutes and just uh, open it up for questions and discussion. Really nice to hear from people about moments where you feel like you had that samadhi, that unification of mind, and then what got in the way of it, or what you feel is in the way. Like what, what does get in the way of the mind collecting itself in the present moment? Yeah, Brenda. It's novel, you know, it's a little disconcerting when the shift begins to happen in our life because we're not used to that evenness. 
we're used to operating on agitation. Agitation has been our fuel. And, you know, from a Buddhist perspective, for many, many lifetimes, you know, but who knows? But what we do know for this lifetime, it's been our fuel. And just think about our culture. Think about yourself as a little girl, as a teenager, as a young adult. Like, we specifically orient around things that are agitating, that are scary, that are exciting. That's where we go for our life energy. And now all of a sudden, because of the practice you've been doing, you've begun to see how stressful that kind of living is. And so you've teased it out, little by little, teased it out, and you're not going to those ways of agitating the mind in order to feel alive. And it's a huge transition. Now we have to learn to find a kind of uh, wholeness and um, like just a whole different orientation, from, but from a different source. And what is that different source? So now, instead of drinking from the well of agitation, we're drinking from the well of peace. So we have to cultivate a taste for peace. It's not splashy. Peace, calm, serenity is not splashy. But it's very deep. But, but it takes time for the mind. It's almost like the mind is learning to tune into a different frequency. You know, it was relatively easy to turn into the, tune into the dense, loud frequency of agitation. But this is a more refined frequency. And as soon as our mind gets a little dense, it doesn't seem to make sense. It doesn't seem like much of anything. It almost seems boring, like you said, Brenda, you know. But it's not. It's a deep, resonant pool. But it takes some time to sort of, you know, retune the mind. And one thing you can do is uh, a little inquiry. Like when you're starting to notice that equanimity and that peacefulness, just a little inquiry like, is this safe? Is this wholesome? Is this pleasant? See, it's interesting. Normally, we think of pleasantness in a more gross way. You know, like think about the kind of candy that kids like. Now, as adults, of course, we won't eat that stuff, right? We, we have refined taste, like dark chocolate, you know. But, you know, it's like kids, you know, they, they want things that are vibrantly colored and, you know, incredibly sweet or tangy or whatever. But then we get refined. Well, this is true in spiritual life, too. It's like, you know, normally, in order to be happy, we needed to win the $10 million lottery and fall in love with the most incredibly attractive person that we could imagine, who also happens to be very wealthy and funny and intelligent and incredibly kind, you know. But now it's like, now what we find is like just waiting for the bus is completely sufficient. We don't need anything else, you know, or just, you know, and it doesn't make sense. You've got to be careful saying this to people who don't understand this. They're thinking something's gone wrong. Or like one time uh, in Thailand, uh, uh, there was a, I don't know if you remember, 15 years ago, there was a kind of economic crisis in Asia. And uh, some of the politicians in Thailand, you know, which is a very Buddhist country, saying, you know, people got to go out and spend money, you know, we've we got to get this economy moving. And uh, we're sort of talking to some of the Buddhist leaders, the monks, you know, like, hey, you gotta, you got to preach something differently here. <laughs> because it's like we're in this bubble where it depends on the whole life, culturally, economically, 
it all depends on agitation. It's like so many of our friendships, if we don't, if we if we can't be together in a provocative way, it's like we don't know how to be together. You know, we have to do something provocative to sort of entertain ourselves. And so we have to find friends we can just be with, and we have to find activities that that make it okay to just be. You know, it's not about what we're doing as much as as the being, the sort of the collecting, the sort of full or wholeness that we bring to the activity. And so the activity itself doesn't matter so much. It's the wholeness in the activity that matters. Same with our interactions. Like the people we can really gravitate or people we can be wholly there with, not have to sort of be strategic or try to get something or give something. But just the giving and the getting is sort of natural. It's sort of secondary. But it's more like a full release in the relating. And then the giving and receiving is just natural. Our whole life can be that way, kind of a a surrender. So you can learn to trust it and then learn to surrender in it. And you'll see that your choices and what you say and don't say, that will just come out of that trusting and releasing into the stillness, into the wholeness. And you'll find that you can still laugh and cry and make jokes and uh, just sort of be Brenda. You actually be more Brenda. <laughs> yeah. yeah, thanks for bringing it up, Brenda. Other thoughts? Yes, I forgot your name. Rebecca. Rebecca. Um, I just want to make an observation. Sure. Um, so I've been um, meditating off and on for a large part of my life, but, but in August I really decided that I wanted to do something every day. So um, I've noticed that um, since doing that, my perception of time is changing. It's just really interesting. Like, like I'm like a lot of people. I used to just whatever be preoccupied, making sure I'm on time somewhere and trying to map it out and all that. And in the last couple of weeks, I just don't care. And I never look at my clock, and I my watch stopped working, and so I just like, have my cell phone that has the only timepiece I have, and I often forget it at home. And so I go a whole day without really knowing what time it is. And it, it like in the past it used to just drive me insane, you know, but now I just like don't care. And I noticed that the funny thing is I'm on time, right? <laughs> like like. The less I look at my watch, the more on time I am places. And um, I just kind of wonder, like, it, it all seemed to kind of happen when I um, became more present in the moment. And um, I kind of wonder if there's a connection between, like, linear, like, physical time and, like, present moment living. And why is it that it's not a part of my life anymore or seeming to disappear? Yeah. yeah. I mean, there are many of these concepts. Time is a concept, right? I mean, I know it doesn't feel that way. But actually, there's only here and now. The past doesn't exist anywhere, and the future doesn't exist anywhere. And I totally get, pragmatically, why we have clocks and stuff like that. But like Rebecca's suggesting, the concept of time can be quite diluting and can, can justify a lot of tension in the mind. We feel justified rushing, being shamed because of being late and things like that, all because of this concept of time. It's like 
as soon as I think about out there or that we've got to be done at 8.30, you know, it, uh, the mind does something. So when we use time, when we use any concept, it doesn't mean we shouldn't use them, but we don't want to be confused by the concept. So your job now is like in having experience of relative freedom from the concepts of time. Now, now probably a more advanced practice is to go get another watch, you know, and but not be confused by it, or to notice the watches around you, you know, oh, it's you know 820 or whatever, but not to be confused by that concept of time and 820. You know, so that's really what enlightenment is. Enlightenment isn't getting rid of all the concepts. It's about not getting confused by them. But it's very valuable for time to time to throw away, like to do things where we get some space around it. That's why retreat practice can be so useful. Where, for example, we don't talk when we're on retreats. And, you know, some of us have gone on long retreats for three months or longer even. And there's really no talking. And so much of our whole world is built upon our conversations we have. We sort of reestablish who we are every few moments in our conversations with other people. And then when you're not doing that, it's like reality gets a lot looser, you know? And then you're not looking at mirrors so much, and you're not having a lot of time pieces because the schedule sort of, you know, you sit and then you walk and then you sit and you walk and eventually it's meal time and then you sit and you walk, you sit. And a lot of the sort of conceptual structures that hold together our worldview start to get really loose. It's really useful. But then the real practice is coming back into the world and learning to have a schedule, learning to have relationships, you learning to have language, you know, and to communicate, to not be confused by it. That's that's like infinitely more difficult. But that's that's our path. So we want to have these experiences where we drop form, drop it, let it go, and realize the relief, like you described so well, you know, and sort of going beyond and just realizing how much your mind was tied into time. So and now you can exp explore the other. I mean, not that you have to go back in a big, big way, but really make sure you're not afraid of it, not afraid of the concept, because it's just a concept. And now you know it's just a concept. Now you know you're not dependent on it. So now you don't have to be afraid of it when it comes in. And then if you do, you can always practice letting go. You know, put the watch away for a while, practice not using time, and then, again, explore after a couple of weeks, coming back with it. I just want to say that what I noticed when I started meditating every day is that not only did I like not really have a firm grasp on time, which is life, yeah. flowed, it was like more fluid. Everything just seemed more fluid. Even yeah. like conversations with people or just everyday things, I just noticed that. So yeah, yeah, yeah. That's what we call freedom. That's what we mean by freedom, like the fruit of practice, is that flow. And we should just experiment with this. Take a, you know, some activity you do relatively re regularly, you know, a couple times a day, and just practice. Instead of coming into it with an idea of how you're going to do it right or what you want to avoid doing, instead come armed with only mindfulness. So what is mindfulness again? It means being fully released and fully interested. So really awake, really clear, but released, undefended, not controlling, not trying to do it right, just showing up, as Rebecca's suggesting. And just see if you're 
interaction, that whatever that happening is, see whether it actually goes pretty well. And you might gain confidence in this kind of path of basically instead of using our preconceived ideas, it's not like we're getting rid of our preconceived ideas, but we're not depending on them. We're not fixing on them. We're really taking our refuge in mindfulness, in that clear, relaxed presence. And we're seeing that life can flow out of that. And even mindfulness itself isn't a self-centered activity. Now, at first, it might feel like, OK, I'm going to be mindful. But later, it's not even that. That's too much of a self-project. It's like the way to be mindful is just to let things happen. <laughs> like you, Nobody has to be mindful to hear my voice. right? It happens effortlessly. So at first, it becomes a, a self-centered activity, being mindful. But then we got to tease that out. We have to realize that mindfulness is effortless. It's what's there when everything else is let go of. And that's where the real freedom, that sounds like you've been tapping into, starts to come up. A little bit more time, maybe for two more people, if anybody else has some thoughts to share. Questions that come up? Yeah. I'm yeah. Meredith. Meredith. It's a very common place, and probably a lot of people in the room can relate to what you're saying. And this is what we would call a corruption in our practice, and it is inevitable. It will happen. It happens to everybody. Once we have a sense how wholesome, how skillful and powerful mindfulness is, we just want to pull it out each time life gets difficult. But that's just a subtle or not so subtle ego control, like you're suggesting. So. The key there, Meredith, is uh, there we are in that difficult situation at work. Mind, the way mindfulness expresses itself is that experience that, oh, this is really difficult. And if the mind is confused, like how to practice successfully here, then we have to open to that confusion. Mindfulness doesn't tell us what to do. It doesn't actually fix things. It just reveals the truth that this is how it is now. We've got to remember that. It's hard to remember that, but that's it. This is why human beings don't want to take refuge in mindfulness. We want to take refuge in something that's going to control things and give us the results we want. That's the ego approach, right? The ego wants to be competent and do things that lead to the results that the ego wants. 
Mindfulness arises when we realize the limitations of that egocentric approach to life and to life's problems. When we really get that that doesn't work, we're willing to explore that more unconditional acceptance. Oh, this is being confused. It's like this being confused. Well, can this be okay? Can this mind-body relax in the experience of not knowing what to do, not knowing how to relate? Or even worse, can this mind-body relax seeing the impulse to react in a way that I know better? I know it's not going to help, but I can't stop myself. Can I see that? Because if we see that really clearly, it will undermine it. So sometimes the way forward is to do something unskillful, but to see very clearly that it's unskillful. It's almost like we're moving through the motions. And, that's a, and we have to accept that because it's not personal. It's not Meredith doing this unskillful thing. Habit energies have momentum. And they're acting out that momentum. But now there's an awareness that this is happening. And this awareness is allowing for feedback, like we're learning from the unskillfulness of what we're doing. So it won't continue forever, but it can be very unpleasant. And it almost feels like it would be better to be distracted or to be disconnected, but it's not. We've taken that path too many times. We know it doesn't go anywhere. If we take the path of distraction or disconnection or denial, nothing ever changes. So we've got to be right there. So it's really important point you're bringing up because it reminds us that this is not an easy path. Or as one person said, the easy way is the hard way. You know, the, the fast way is the hard way. We have to actually feel or see what's happening. And it's often not pleasant. It's difficult. But it's in the right direction. And you'll get that sense. You know, you probably already have that sense just from how you asked the question, that it's the right way. And it's just like teasing out that controlling part that wants to go right from mindfulness, the idea of mindfulness, to release. Release will happen, but it happens through that full exposure to how it is now. You know, the confusion, the frustration, the impatience, the feeling of vulnerability, you know, the shame for not being a skillful human being. We have to be fully exposed, because that's how it is now. And that's what mindfulness is. It's that full exposure, that calm, relaxed, clear exposure to the way it is. Good luck. Please check back in with the group, you know, if it makes sense in the weeks ahead. So let's just take a few seconds.